this week, Sears adjourns junior dip hearing as marketing process continues. Ultra Petroleum continues to seek amendments. David's Bridal provides details on restructuring negotiations. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Mark Fisher. This week, your podcast master of ceremonies, Karen Lung, sits down with Deputy Managing Editor and Senior Legal Analyst, Angela Thalassinos, to discuss the use of debt reinstatement as a restructuring tool in Chapter 11. It's Sunday, October 28th. Sears again dominated headlines this week as the company was back in court seeking approval of its store closing procedures. Earlier in the week, Ray Schrock of Wild Gotchel for the debtors said that the junior dip financing hearing was adjourned. On Thursday, Judge Robert Drain approved the store closing procedures and liquidation consulting agreement. The debtors identified 142 of their almost 700 stores to close immediately. At the hearing, the debtors also provided more color on the junior financing. Schrock reported that following Sears bankruptcy filing, the company was, quote, st- has stabilized operations and performed, quote, much better than forecasted under the dip budget in the case's first week. Schrock noted that the debtors adjourned the junior dip financing hearing because there was no pressing need for additional liquidity at this time, adding that Lazard has been actively engaging with a significant number of interested parties in addition to ESL. Schrock also stated that the debtors and Lazard are considering a number of other financing structures, quote, outside of the ESL structure that require consultation with the senior dip lenders, the UCC, and other relevant parties. At the UCC formation meeting, the debtors disclosed that the junior dip financing interim approval hearing date, which was set for November 1st, would instead be a date on or around November 8th. Ultra Petroleum extended the deadline for lenders to accept a proposed term loan amendment to 5 p.m. Eastern time on Friday. The amendment would allow for additional junior lien capacity needed to complete the company's proposed bond exchange. The deadline was extended from Thursday at noon. Reorg learned that an ad hoc group of term loan lenders now claims to hold a blocking position in the loans. The group has organized with Strook and Strook and was said to be pushing for better terms. The company's offer, Reorg learned, was for a 25 basis point coupon boost and a 50 basis point consent fee. A week after skipping its October 15th coupon payment, David's Bridal confirmed terms of a recapitalization proposal that Reorg previously reported on. The disclosures include a restructuring term sheet proposal submitted by the company to stakeholders on October 3rd and a counterproposal submitted by an ad hoc group of term loan lenders on October 9th. The company and lender proposals contemplate an equitization of the company's notes through an $80 million rights offering backed by existing note holders, an $80 million secure a second lien facility in the form of new money or the subordination of the existing term loan, and a repayment of $80 million of the first lien term loan using cash proceeds from the rights offering. The proposals also both contemplate a refinancing of the company's existing $480 million first lien term loan into a $320 million new first lien term loan. The term lender's proposal reviews that the parties have contemplated existing note holders, Solis and or Oaktree, backing the approximately $80 million rights offering, and Oaktree subordinating $80 million of its existing first lien term loan holdings into a second lien term loan. The company proposal contemplates that rights offering pro forma ownership would total, in bracketed, 
95% to be determined, and that existing bondholders' pro forma ownership would total, in brackets also, 5% to be determined. The lender proposal contemplates that the notes will be exchanged on a pro rata basis in a private, unregistered exchange offer for new common stock, but specifies that, quote, pro forma ownership is to be determined. David's Bridal also purported that comparable store sales fell 6.5% during the company's third quarter. The company expects $75 million of EBITDA for the full year 2018. On the island of Puerto Rico on Monday, the PROMESA Oversight Board released the draft fiscal plan for the Commonwealth, which projected over a six-year period a cumulative net surplus of $6.34 billion and illustrative contractual debt service payments of $10.6 billion. This compares with the September 7th draft fiscal plan, which projected a deficit of $3.44 billion over the same period. The draft fiscal plan makes clear that the illustrative debt service payments do not represent anticipated future payments on restructured debt. Without fiscal and structural measures, the October 21st draft said, the six-year deficit is expected to total $5.2 billion. Promesa Executive Director Natalie Juresco at a press conference that followed the plan's release, said that the board is committed to a, quote, once-and-done approach to the debt restructuring process over the next year, so its focus can shift to implementation of needed structural and fiscal reforms, and that it is sticking to a timetable that would see all plans of adjustment completed by early 2020. At its 15th public meeting on Tuesday, the board unanimously voted to certify the plan, despite members saying that deeper reforms are needed to ensure the long-term sustainability of Puerto Rico's economy and public finances. Also in Puerto Rico, the Treasury Department on Tuesday said that net revenue to the general fund beat the monthly projections in September, and is outpacing fiscal year-to-date projections by nearly $331 million through the first quarter of fiscal 2019. Other top red stories of the week were number one, mattress firm. English High Court grants Stripes U.S. Holdings scheme convening order. Number two, Intelsat C Band Alliance increases spectrum repurposing proposal to 200 megahertz. Number three, Westmoreland Coal, United Mine Workers of America file adversary complaint. And now here's Jim Holloway in Houston with the week ahead. Well, thanks, Karen. Hello, everybody. And don't touch that spreadsheet, because this week and the two weeks after, we will be engaged in the annual ritual known as third quarter earnings season. So it's a whole lot of busy before we can all take a deep breath and descend into a trip to fan and do slumber on Thanksgiving. There's also some court activity, so something for everybody. Monday, October 29th, we have earnings from Weatherford International, CBL, Community Health, and First Quantum. And on the legal side, billable hours for Mattress Firm, where we have an exit financing and final dip hearing, the Taj Debtors Asia Joint Venture Asset Sale Auction in Toys R Us, and in PetSmart. It's the counterclaim defendant's response deadline. Tuesday, October 30th, earnings calls for CBL Community Health, Whiting Petroleum reports, as does McDermott International, and Altice USA, the exchange offering consent deadline, which I guess is moot since they met the minimum tender back in mid-October. Wednesday, October 31st, earnings for Diebold, GNC, and W&T Offshore. 
and a name dear to me, Hornbeck Offshore, reporting after the close with its call on Thursday. I'll be interested to see how Mr. Ton Hornbeck characterizes activity in the Gulf. There's them that say it's starting to pick up. We also have the forbearance expiration for PetroQuest, a Cotton Valley operator, a confirmation hearing in Pacific Drilling, and what a long voyage it has been, and the plant effective date for Rex Energy. Thursday, November 1st, earnings from Avon. I guess we'll be listening out for color on its cost reduction program. Urban One also reports, as do Teva Pharmaceuticals, Unity, California Resources, and Weight Watchers. Also, Sanchez Energy, another personal favorite, an Eagleford operator here in Texas. Listen out on the call for color about their Comanche asset, which they owned along with Blackstone and where they've had some challenges. As we mentioned before, the Eagleford is a place for, to be for some EMPs given the Louisiana light suite pricing. When we also have NRG REMA plan confirmation hearing in Genon and the Witten settlement hearing in Cobalt. And Friday, November 2nd, Vistra Energy third quarter earnings. And that would seem to be it. Good luck, folks. And just remember, we're going to do it all again next week. And Karen, I will hand it back to you. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Karen discusses debt reinstatement as a restructuring tool in Chapter 11 with Deputy Managing Editor and Senior Legal Analyst, Angela Thalassinos. I'm talking today with Angela Thalassinos, Deputy Managing Editor of Reorg Americas and Senior Legal Analyst. We're going to be discussing a topic that has recently come up in the American Tire Distributors bankruptcy, as well as a number of other dynamic situations that we've covered in recent years. Debt reinstatement in Chapter 11. Thanks for having me on, Karen. So here's the situation. While reinstatement may not be the topic du jour in a healthy market and credit cycle, it quickly gains prominence when the pricing of credit risk increases. The key indicator, irrespective of the market, is if a company has favorable terms, including interest rate, that it wants to continue. So how about we start with a quick overview of the statutory requirements for reinstatement? Of course. Debt reinstatement is governed by Section 1124.2 of the Bankruptcy Code. That provision has several requirements before debt can be reinstated to its pre-default maturity date, notwithstanding any contractual provision or applicable law allowing for accelerated payment after the occurrence of default. To achieve debt reinstatement, a company must 1. Cure any defaults aside from a bankruptcy filing default, 2. Compensate the holder for any damages incurred as a result of any reasonable reliance on acceleration or demand contractual provision. And three, the reinstatement must not otherwise alter the holder's legal, equitable, or contractual rights. Well, while that sounds relatively straightforward, what are some of the pitfalls or battlegrounds with respect to debt reinstatement? Well, as can be imagined in a reinstatement scenario whereby a company without lender consent can deaccelerate the debt and reinstate the original terms of maturity, lenders may very well challenge that the requirements are met. So let's take one quick step back. If the reinstatement requirements are met, what is the effect on the Chapter 11 plan process? The effect could be very significant. A class of debt that would be reinstated would be deemed to have accepted the plan and such claims would be unimpaired, taking the power of a plan vote away from such creditors. This potential dramatic shift in plan dynamics could very well save a debtor from a contested cramdown dispute if the debt of what would be an objecting class of creditors were successfully reinstated. Allowing debtors to reinstate favorable terms, such as lower than market interest rates, could also help with plan feasibility and allow junior creditors 
to hold on to a greater share of the reorganized company. Interesting. So those are a couple of significant aspects of any reinstatement strategy. Now let's get back to potential challenges to reinstatement. So what are the sorts of arguments that a class of creditors could make to challenge reinstatement? Well, generally, arguments against or landmines surrounding reinstatement have focused on whether non-monetary defaults can be cured and whether covenants will be breached following or because of consummation of a particular restructuring plan. Reinstatement could be more challenging if a company is undertaking an operational restructuring, as change in control, divestiture restriction, and application of proceeds covenants could prove problematic. Accordingly, reinstatement could be a more viable strategy during a financial balance sheet restructuring, although financial ratio covenants and the feasibility of a plan, including its projections, could yet remain hot-button disputed issues. Great. So the off-sited reinstatement case is Charter Communications. What can we learn from that case and other more recent cases dealing with reinstatement? A 2009 decision, Charter is a very good place to start, as is Young Broadcasting from 2010. We can then fast forward to three cases of more recent vintage and focus in on some takeaways. Reinstatement of senior debt was successful in Charter while it was not in Young Broadcasting. Give us a little background uh, about what happened. So aside from the success or lack thereof of the reinstatement strategy itself, a potentially significant distinguishing factor in those two cases was that reinstatement was part of the company's strategy in Charter before even filing for Chapter 11. In contrast, the reinstatement strategy in Young Broadcasting was initially pushed by the Unsecured Creditors Committee, and while it was supported by the company, it was devised during the bankruptcy itself. Okay, so walk us through the Charter case. So there, the company's strategy going into Chapter 11 was to reinstate senior debt to take advantage of favorable terms and to reach a deal with junior bondholders to convert to equity. The the bondholders also backstop a rights offering. The senior debt's change in control provision was central in the reinstatement dispute, as senior lender agent J.P. Morgan argued that the restructuring would violate such provision because controlling shareholder Paul Allen would not retain an economic interest in the reorganized company and that a bondholder group would hold more than 35% of the voting power. Part of the deal in charter was that Allen would retain a 35% voting power and receive about $375 million in cash and other consideration but would not retain an ongoing economic interest. That portion of the deal was key to the debtor's plan to reinstate the senior debt and to also preserve nearly $3 billion in net operating losses. In dispatching J.P. Morgan's arguments to the contrary, the court and charter held that the requirement that Allen had to have no less than 35% of their ordinary voting power did not require that there would be an attendant economic interest, relying in part on the credit agreement previously contained an economic interest requirement. In addition, the court and charter pointed out that there was no formal agreement reached between the bondholders and ruled that they did not constitute a quote-unquote group under the credit agreement. Here, the court also said that there had been no explanation about the practical importance of the covenant requiring that no group hold more than 35% of the voting power or what impact that requirement could have on the company's credit risk or a variation of that percentage. Accordingly, the court narrowly construed that covenant and permitted the company to pursue their restructuring. And the attempt to reinstate senior debt in the Young Broadcasting case had quite a different result. What happened when the UCC in that case tried to confirm its reinstatement plan? 
That's right. So in that case, two competing plans were presented, one from the debtors and one from the committee. The company, though, agreed to seek confirmation of the committee's plan and would seek confirmation of its own plan only if the committee plan was not confirmed. Under the UCC plan, the senior debt would have been reinstated, general unsecured creditors would have split $1 million pro rata, and note holders would have received 10% of reorganized equity and an opportunity to participate in a rights offering for further equity. The senior secured lenders and Young Broadcasting successfully objected to confirmation of the committee's plan, arguing in part that the plan would violate a change of control provision in the credit agreement. The lenders' arguments against the plan, focusing on feasibility and the absolute priority rule, were also successful. So the court concluded that the plan would result in a default under the credit agreement, violating one of the requirements in the reinstatement standard that you laid out for us earlier. Yes, and to zoom in on this change in control provision, it required Vincent Young, one of the debtor's founders, to control at least 40% of the voting stock. Under the committee's plan, Young would have been granted all of the new Class B common stock, entitling him to cast 40% of the total number of votes for directors, but only permitted Young to elect one of the seven directors. In that context, the lenders were successful in arguing that this construct would violate the change in control provision. The judge ruled that the benefit of the bargain and the credit agreement required Young to not simply have the power to cast 40% of the votes, but to have the power to influence 40% of the composition of the board. One way to view the contrasting change in control-related conclusions in Charter and Young Broadcasting is to focus on the bargain struck in the underlying credit agreement and any related business rationale. In Charter, the court could not find a rationale behind the 35% requirement, and so appeared to narrowly construe the provision, while in Young Broadcasting, there appeared to be an influence and control rationale tied to the 40% requirement, allowing the court to conclude that the proposed reinstatement would not grant the lenders the benefit of their bargain. Finally, the court in Young Broadcasting determined that the committee's plan was not feasible as it was unlikely that the company could pay or refinance the debt at maturity. And so holding, the court excluded a DCF analysis done by the committee's expert and also found that the company's projections were not realistic. Thanks for that look at Charter and Young Broadcasting, two cases out of the Southern District of New York with different outcomes relating to attempts to reinstate senior debt. Now let's turn to some more recent cases. More recently, the Mali Corp Chapter 11 was an example of junior debt holders seeking to impose a reinstatement plan on senior creditors. In 2015, the Mali Corp debtors sought court approval of dip financing to be provided by 10% secured note holders, which would have led to an RSA and pursuit of a reinstatement plan against secured lender Oak Tree. The note holders' dip proposal was denied at the first A hearing, and thereafter Oak Tree came in with a competing dip that garnered company support and was approved by the court. And what arguments did the note holders make, and what kind of restructuring were they proposing? So under the note holder proposal, those 10% note holders would have received 100% of reorganized equity, subject to certain dilution, and the oak tree debt would have been reinstated without payment of an asserted makehole. The makehole was a significant issue in the bankruptcy, and the company expressed concerns that the note holders' contemplated restructuring would have led to extensive litigation with oak tree on the reinstatement of their debt and on the disputed make-whole claim amounts. That's interesting that the Mali Corp debtors cited avoiding litigation risk related to the Oak Tree debt as a reason to move forward with the Oak Tree dip. That's right. 
in a response and support of final approval of the Oak Tree dip financing, the debtor said, quote, while many factors were considered in the debtor's decision to choose the revised Oak Tree dip facility, an important question in deliberations was, is it better to choose a path that sets off an all-out litigation war now with the attendant implementation risks, or is it better to obtain additional time and liquidity to attempt to forge consensus around the contours of the debtor's restructuring? End quote. The debtors continued, quote, because no matter how the 10% noteholder group tries to couch the terms of their alternative proposals, they lead inevitably to litigation with Oak Tree, first over valuation, adequate protection, and or structural seniority in connection with approval of the 10% noteholder group's post-position financing, and then over reinstatement, make-hold premiums, and feasibility, among other things, in connection with the approval of the Chapter 11 plan the 10% noteholder group has indicated it would support. End quote. The debtors expressed the view that Oak Tree had made it clear that it would challenge any attempt to reinstate its debt. In the Molly Corp case, although the litigation never came to be as the company pursued an Oak Tree-led restructuring and a plan settlement was reached with note holders and the Unsecured Creditors Committee, you saw a dynamic whereby creditors seeking to pursue a reinstatement plan argued that reinstating senior debt would have prevented the payment of a make-hole. Right. We saw that argument in a very different context recently in the ultra-petroleum bankruptcy. Reinstatement was raised in the dispute between the ultra-debtors and holders of unsecured OPCO-funded debt claims over whether the OPCO notes were entitled to payment of nearly $400 million in asserted make-hole and post-petition interest claims. The OPCO-funded debt claims were listed as unimpaired in ultra's plan, and Judge Marvin Isger asked whether, in the event that the Bankruptcy Code's provisions concerning unimpairment require their reinstatement of unimpaired claim, that means that the court should vacate the acceleration that, under the note's terms, may have required a prepayment. A key issue in the dispute was that since Ultra's plan provided for unimpaired treatment of the OPCO-funded debt claims, uh, what would that unimpairment look like? The OPCO note holders asserted that in order to be unimpaired, they had to be paid the make-whole and post-petition interest. And in contrast, the debtors argued that the make-whole was not owed, relying on a hypothetical situation in which the notes would be reinstated. That is, if the notes were to be reinstated, then no make-whole would be owed and the notes would be unimpaired, the debtors asserted. Ultra argued that this hypothetical scenario showed, quote, the severe nature of the note holders' double counting, end quote. Specifically, the debtor said that paying the make-hole here would be the equivalent of awarding a make-hole in an amount calculated as if principal was repaid on the petition date and default interest calculated as if principal was not paid until the effective date. The OPCO debt holders argued that the debtors did not reinstate the notes and could not have done so, even if they had intended to, as key plan provisions could not be reconciled with reinstatement. In other words, the note holders pointed to reinstatement as a form of unimpaired treatment that they did not receive in order to argue that they should be paid the make-whole and post-petition interest. So both sides relied on the concept of reinstatement to argue their opposite views on the OPCO note holders' entitlement to the make-whole and post-petition interest. What did Judge Isger decide? So while the decision did not hinge on the concept of reinstatement, Judge Isger concluded that the OPCO note holders were entitled to the make-all amount, post-petition interest on the OPCO notes at the contractual default rate in the master note purchase agreement, and other related fees and expenses. 
Belcher debtors have appealed that decision, and the matter is currently pending before the Fifth Circuit. So let's turn now to a recent Chapter 11 filing from the beginning of the fourth quarter, American Tire Distributors. The debtors filed for bankruptcy with a restructuring support agreement in hand with sponsors Aries and TPG and consenting senior subordinated note holders. The restructuring was also supported by the debtors' ABL lenders. However, the first day declaration from CFO William Williams said that the debtors had not reached an agreement with the ad hoc term lender group and, quote, failing reaching such agreement, intend to reinstate the existing term loan. With that statement from the CFO, it appeared that the ad hoc term lender group was not on board and that a reinstatement dispute would be looming. However, the debtors announced a deal to amend and extend the term loan at the first day hearing, and that agreement is supported by ABL lenders and holders of more than 75% of unsecured bonds. Perhaps the threat of reinstatement was a negotiating tactic that the debtors raised in the course of their discussions, and those discussions ultimately produced a resolution with the term loan holders. So, Angelo, in the cases that we've discussed today, Molly Corp, Ultra Petroleum, and American Tire, as well as those older cases from the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Court, we've seen case parties try a number of strategies when invoking reinstatement. That's right. And unfortunately for bankruptcy enthusiasts like us, we have not seen a full-blown reinstatement fight in some time. However, we can glean several considerations when it comes to reinstatement, threatened or actual, from the cases we have discussed. Among the most important considerations is the balance of litigation risk against a feasible and effective restructuring plan and strategy. A company's pre-petition planning and narrative could go a long way in any reinstatement dispute. A company and any reinstatement proponents should also likely consider and work around any pre-petition defaults and ensuring that reinstated debt holders are receiving the benefit of their bargain. Here, a sometimes overly technical interpretation of a covenant or the bargain may actually work against a reinstatement strategy. This is very dependent on a particular situation, of course, and will be analyzed on a case-by-case basis. Well, thank you so much, Angelo, for discussing with us today about the use of reinstatement as a restructuring tool in Chapter 11. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Mark Fisher, and this has been The Week in Reorg.